One of the central components of Parshas Emor is its list of the holidays, the various dates, reasons, and some of the mitzvos that accompany all of the various holidays. In the midst of the Torah's description of the various holidays, no surprise, the Torah also includes the mitzvah of Sviras Omer, the period of 49 days of seven weeks in between Pesach and Shavuos, which, coincidentally enough, every year is read during the actual Omer period. What is interesting is that even though we seem to know the historical reasons and commemorations for all the various holidays, there is no reason given in the Torah for the mitzvah of Sfiras Omer. Therefore, it is left to the classical commentaries and to the Rishonim in general, as well as in their commentary to our Parsha, to suggest various explanations and theories for this fascinating mitzvah. Interestingly, the various Mepharshim that I'd like to share with you today seem to break up into two broader categories. Those who focus on the agricultural uh, link between the start and finish of the counting, and those who focus on a more historical link between those dates. Let's begin with the approach of those who take a somewhat technical and agricultural approach. The tour, one of the great medieval halachists who also has a fascinating commentary on the Torah, points out that the new moon would usually be announced, as we know, when the Sanhedrin would declare Rosh Chodesh, and then they would send messengers to all the different communities to let them know when Rosh Chodesh was so they could begin counting. And this way, anyone living anywhere in Eretz Yisrael would know when the calendar was, when the dates were, when Rosh Chodesh was, and would be able to celebrate holidays at the same time. However, he points out that the system was inadequate during the harvest season because the uh, workers were too busy in the fields, and therefore during Pesach and Shavuos, in between the harvest of barley and the harvest of the wheat, it would be a problem because the messengers wouldn't be able to get to the various workers in the fields. And therefore, there was a fear that they wouldn't know when the new month was of Er, and they Sivan, excuse me, and they wouldn't be able to celebrate Shavuos on the correct day. Therefore, says the tour, we have a mitzvah of Sfiras Omer. Start counting 49 days from the second day of Pesach, and then when you finish that, you know that the next day is Shavuos. So in fact, according to him, it's a very pragmatic uh, approach. There's no intrinsic significance to counting of the Omer. The purpose is simply to keep track of the date so that every individual knows when the holiday of Shavuos begins. All you have to know is when to start counting, and automatically it will help you. The Avudraham, in his commentary to the Siddur, has a very similar idea. He says the farmer is so preoccupied that he might simply forget, even if he knew the date, but he might forget to, to when exactly Shavuos was because he's so preoccupied with his harvest, and therefore he has a mitzvah to count to make sure he doesn't forget to go Aliyah Laregel to go to Yerushalayim and Beis HaMikdash on Shavuos. Somewhat similarly, but with a little bit more of a spiritual bent, but also focusing on the agriculture, is the Sforno here in our Parsha. He explains that the Sphira begins on the second day of Pesach, beginning with the barley harvest, and we count until the beginning of the wheat harvest on Shavuos. The Omer is the carbon that's brought in Thanksgiving for that barley, that's the carbon that's brought on Pesach, and other carbonos are brought there as well, which are also uh, forms of prayer, of tefillah for additional success. And then we count Sviras Omer, we count the seven weeks, the 49 days, where we're davening, we're offering prayers to Hashem for a successful harvest. And then we actually bring the Karban Shteelechem on Shavuos as a thanksgiving for that harvest. So here there's a, certainly a spiritual or religious dimension. It has to do with our prayers for success, our prayers of thanksgiving, praying for Hash- to Hashem to give us Haslacha, thanking Hashem, Shavach Bahudah but it's still very much connected to the agricultural components of the harvest of the wheat and the barley, respectively. Obviously, these are 
very beautiful ideas and so very relevant to the life of a farmer. However, for those of us who are not farmers, a little bit, a little bit removed. However, there are two uh, other very beautiful approaches found in the Mefarshim, which focus not on the agriculture as much as the historical significance. The Orachayim Akadosh here in our parsha also uh, focuses on the fact that we are counting from not harvest to harvest, but rather specifically Pesach to Shavuos. Pesach is when we left Mitzrayim, Shavuos is when we got the Torah. And according to him, we are counting from leaving Egypt. That's the focus. How so? Because as we know, Chazal teach us that the Jewish people were on a very low level of spirituality. They were on the 49th level of Tumah. And therefore, says Orachayim, they simply were unready and not remotely appropriately in the same situ- in the, in the situation that they could receive the Torah. And therefore, they needed 49 days of purification to be ready and worthy of Matan Torah. And therefore, they had to count, they needed those 49 days in order to be prepared for Shavuos Matan Torah. And we, commemorating that experience, we count to remember this journey. He adds very beautifully that just as a woman who is a Nida counts the days until she can go to the mikvah, each day one step further removed from the Tumah that began the process, so to here we count 49 days, each day another step more removed from the Tumah of Mitzrayim. He also adds very beautifully, this is why we start counting on the second day of Pesach, because on the first day we actually left midday, we left Mitzrayim. So for part of that day we remained in Egypt, and therefore the purification process could not begin until the next day, until the second day, 49 days hence, and then Shavuos. Last but not least is the famous approach of the Sefer Achinuch, who, like the Orachayim, before also focuses on the historical significance of leaving Mitzrayim and getting the Torah on Shavuos. He doesn't focus on the uh, agriculture, but unlike the Orachayim, who spoke about counting from, the Sefer Achinuch talks about counting towards. And that is to say we are linking Pesach and Shavuos, which is critically important because by so doing, he says, we are declaring that the purpose of Itzias Mitzrayim was Matan Torah. As much as we were happy for the physical freedom which we celebrate on Pesach, we count in excitement and anticipation of Shavuos and getting the Torah because we are declaring and reminding ourselves that without the spiritual freedom, the physical freedom would be worthless. By counting, we also express and build our excitement. We count in anticipation of the big day. And just like the Jewish people were excited to get the Torah, we are excited each year after year after year in commemoration and celebration of the giving of the Torah, which we celebrate on Shavuot. So we see altogether today four approaches, two which basically focus on the agriculture and two which focus on the historical connection. The Orachayim talks about counting away from Pesach and Mitzrayim, and the Sefer Chinuch talks about counting towards Shavuot and Matan Torah. The Torah introduces the section of Parshas Emor that deals with the annual holidays, with the Pasuk in Perch of Gimel, Pasuk Beis, Daber el b'nei Yisrael, v'yamart aleihem, speak to the Jewish people and you should tell them, Mo'ade Hashem, the holidays, the special moments, the days of Hashem, Kodesh, which you will call Mikrei Kodesh, Elehei Mo'adai, these are my holidays, these are my special designated days. The truth is, if you think about it, and listen carefully, the Pasuk is somewhat awkward, to say the least. If, it would have just said, the Ber El Bnei Yisrael, V'yamarta Aleihem, Eilehem Moadai, speak to the Jewish people, and tell them, these are my holidays, colon, and then start listing one at a time. That would be a perfectly appropriate introduction to the chapter, a very easy and neat pasuk. 
Instead, the way it's written, the whole middle of the Pasuk, where we say, Mo'adei Hashem, Ashetukro Asam Mikrei Kodesh, it seems somewhere between redundant and an unnecessary diversion. What is going on? How can we understand this Pasuk? So the Nitziv in the Hamek Davar has a beautiful explanation which combines in a brilliant way not only careful reading in Parshanut, but a profound insight and perhaps a chidush in the world of Jewish thought in Machshava. Says the Nitziv, the simple understanding, intuitively we would assume that the Yom Tovim are days that are holy and are designated as holidays because of what took place on that day once upon a time in history. The 15th of Nisan is when we left Egypt, therefore it's the holiday of Pesach, therefore it's a holy day. The 6th or the 7th day of Sivan, that's itself its own debate, is the day that we got the Torah, therefore the holiday of Shavuos, etc., etc. Says the Nitziv that may have been intuitive, it may have been a reasonable assumption, but it's wrong. In fact, he says, the Torah is telling us in this parsha, in this Pasuk, that these are not arbitrary days, that something just happened to have happened. We could have gone out of Egypt on the 17th of Nisan, or for that matter, on the 17th of Shvat, but since we happened to go out on the 15th of Nisan, that's when Pesach is. No, 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 says the Nitziv. These are not arbitrary days in which something just happened to occur, and therefore it became Yantif. Rather, these were innately holy days. Yomim tovim be'etzem. Before getting to the Parshanut and reading the Pasuk inside in his brilliant new way, the Nitziv points out as a proof for this fascinating insight and just the concept that these are days that were holy even before anything happened on them. He points out the Mishnah, the well-known Mishnah in Masechta Rosh Hashanah in the first parak in Parak Tezayin. That the world is judged for different things at four different calendar dates, four different times of the year. But Pesach, the Torah tells, the, excuse me, the Mishnah tells us on Pesach, we're judged for the grain, Ba'atzeres, on Shavuos, on the fruit, Perosa Ilan. We know Rosh Hashanah, we're judged human beings in different ways, Sukkis on the water. Says the Nitziv, these judgments, the idea that there's something that we're judged for on Nisan, for the, on Pesach time, Shavuos, Sukkot, etc., these are innately hum, holy days. These are days of judgment that Hashem has decided that these are days where He takes stock of the world in different ways. And therefore there is significance to these days that predates anything that occurred historically on that day and predates the holidays that are famously associated with these days. These days are not we are not judged on Pesach for the Tvua because we went out of Egypt then. <laughs> There's no connection. Judged on Sukkot because of the rain. Uh, we judged on Sukkot for the water. Uh, There's no connection. Rather, for whatever the reason is, we can't always understand it, of course, but these are ju- judgments that are made on these days determined by Hashem, and they have nothing to do with the historical events that took place. This proves and this demonstrates, as an these are days that are innately holy, independent of events that occurred historically. Now, says the Nitziv, beautifully, we can go back and understand and read the Pasuk. When the Pasuk says, Tell the Jewish people what? What's the first two words, which we wouldn't have expected, which we said were somewhat awkward and clunky, even redundant and a diversion and unnecessary? First two words are, Mo'adei Hashem. In light of what we've said, now we understand, says the Nitziv. Tell the people, Mo'adei Hashem. These are days which have already been 
set aside by Hashem as special days, set aside by God from the beginning of existence of the world. Then the Pasuk continues, Asher Tikru Osam Mikrei Kodesh. Now that you know that these are days that were already Ma'adei Hashem, now you, the Jewish people, make them holidays, make them holy days for yourselves. Elohei Mo'adai. These days which you will make holy for yourself, these were the days that were holy already. They are my holy days, Hashem says. Even before they were your holy days, they were already my holy days. In the language of the uh, Nitziv, he says so beautifully, Hashem had already called them holy days for judgment and other such things. Only afterwards, us later, Tikru Gamatem, now you will also call them holy days. And therefore, says the Nitziv, Mishem Hacha, Shin Hakasov Sham, Vehikti Mikra Kodesh, Litikru Osam. First, they're Mikra Kodesh. Now it's what you will do afterwards, and not the way we would have expected it or the way we have uh, seen it in other contexts. And this, I think, is not only a beautiful reading of the Pasuk, sensitive to the nuances of the language to be bothered to begin with. It's a very tight and creative, uh, I think, and persuasive reading of the Pasuk. But it also gives us a profound insight, and I think for many of us, a chiddush, into how we view mitzvot in general and certainly the mitzvot of our holidays. In fact, there are two dimensions, two dinim, if you will, but really two dimensions. Of course, there's the fact that Hashem said, keep Pesach, uh, eat matzah, don't eat chametz, sit in the sukkah, etc. on those days. Because Hashem commanded, because we're commemorating a certain event, yes, there is a certain um, benefit to listening, of course. However, what we see from the Nitziv is there was also something innate, even beyond the historical event that we're commanded to commemorate in those mitzvahs, there's something innately sanctifying and holy and uplifting and special about those days. And when we do the mitzvahs on those days, we're not only listening to Hashem and commemorating historical events, we're also tapping into that innate and initial kedusha as well. Towards the end of Parachaf Gimel, the chapter that deals with all of the various holidays, the Pasuk tells us in Pasuk Mem, L'kachtem l'chem b'yom harishon, on the first day of Sukkot, you will take, there's a mitzvah to gather together and take, pre-Eitz Hadar, kapos tamarim, anaf Eitz ba'arve nachal. The famous four minim, the lulav, the esrog, the hadasim, and the aravos. We bring them together, we praise Hashem, and we celebrate, samachtem lefnei Hashem lokechem, shivas yamim. These four species, fascinatingly, are not mentioned by their actual names in the Torah. Torah text gives descriptions of them, kapost tamarim, anaf etzavos, but the terms that we use, the terms that go back to Chazal and to the Gemara, lulav esrog, hadasam, and aravos, are not explicitly spelled out in the Torah text. As a result of this, the rabbis in the Medrash, Chazal and Medrash Rabbah, and Vayikra Rabbah, Parsha Lamid, offer numerous suggestions for additional allusions, different messages, as to why the Torah goes out of its way not to just name the species, but only just hint to them with various allusions and descriptions. And the assumption of the Medrash is that there must be additional layers of meaning, additional hints at meaning of each of these different species, and that's why the Torah uses these other descriptions instead of just giving the names of the actual species. The common thread of all of these is the assumption that the four minim 
are used, as the Torah says, to celebrate and to praise Hashem. We take the Arba Minim during Hallel, we celebrate, we praise Hashem. And the question is, what are the, is the deeper message of the Arba Minim? What are they hinting at? What is the way that we can best praise Hashem? And I want to share three different opinions that are suggested all here in the Medrash in Parshalamid. One is that the Torah is referring to the fact, by not using the actual names, but rather these are descriptions that are allusions to, in one version, the Avos or the Amahos, the forefathers or the foremothers. So for example, the first of the ones described, pre-Eitz Hadar, which we know refers to the Esrog. So the Medrash says that's referring to Avraham, who was blessed with a long life, Avraham Zakain Baba Yamim. And we know that the word Hadar from pre-Eitz Hadar overlaps with the word that refers to people who live a long life, Hadarta Bifne Zakain. So Hadar Hadarta, an allusion to Avraham, who lived longer than the other of us, he was a very, very old man. Alternatively, it may refer to Sarah, who lived longer than the other three of our matriarchs. The second one, Kapost Tamarim, the description referring to the love. So says the Medrash, that alludes to Yitzchak, who was Kapus. He was bound up on the altar, on the Mizbeach. Or it was Rivka, who was bound as well. Lulav has fruit and thorns. The Something unique about the Lulav, the date palm, their sharpness to it. If you touch it in the wrong place, on the other hand, it has fruit, the dates that grow from it. So Turifka has fruit and thorns. She had Yaakov and Esav. So the second one is either to Yitzchak or to Rivka. Anaf Eitzavos, referring to the Hadassim, says the Medrash that's Yaakov, because just like the Hadas is ensconced and covered up in leaves, so too Yaakov is surrounded by many more children than previous generations. Or alternatively, it's referring to, referring to Leah, who had more children than any of the other Imahos. And finally, according to this version of the Medrash, Arve Nachal, the Aravos refers to Yosef, just like the Arava withers and dies first. We all know that. Every Sukkot, it's always our Aravos that are constantly drying up. So too, Yosef died before the other Shvatim, before his brothers. Or alternatively, it refers to Rachel, who died at a young age and before her sister Leah. I think the message of this Medrash, whether it's the Avos or the Himahos, is that what brings us what helps us praise Hashem and what we need to bring to bear is the zuchus, the merit of having great tzaddikim, leaders, whether it's the avos or the imahos or throughout history, and that inspiration and guidance and leadership that we have from being surrounded by such great people, that is the first zuchus that we take with us when we praise Hashem. A second opinion brought later in this uh, section of the Medrash compares very famously the four species to four different parts of the human body. Pre-Eitz Hadar, the Esrog, that is comparable to the lave, to the heart. Kapost Tamarim, the lulav, that refers to the shedra, to the spine. Anaf Eitzavos, the hadasim are like the eyes. And Arve Nachal, the aravos, are like the mouth. In each of these cases, uh, it's clear that the Medrash is making a physical comparison. The esrog roughly looks like the heart. Obviously, the lulav very much looks like a spine, etc., etc. And the Medrash connects this idea to the Pasuk in Tehillim and Perak Lamed Hay, that we are supposed to bring all of the bones of our body in praise of Hashem. We need all of them to praise Hashem. And these four, which are critical to literally life, in the case of uh, one's heart and things like that, but certainly overall quality of life and being able to be productive, eyes, mouth, heart, and spine, says the Medrash in essence that if you want to praise Hashem, you need to put 
your whole body into it. You need to put everything into Hashem. You can't just kind of come, you know, I'll talk to Hashem, my mouth is working, but my heart's not in it. Or my eyes are wandering and focused and unfocused, etc. If you want to truly praise Hashem, you want to truly bring give Hallel and praise and Hodah to Hashem, you need to bring all of the forces of your personality, your, your emotional and physical strength. Everything needs to be focused. Everything needs to be bound together in the service and the praise of Hashem. If we're not all in, then it really is not going to work in a very meaningful way. And last but not least is the super famous uh, suggestion in the Medrash that this refers to four different types of Jews. Pre-Eitz Hadar, it, the Esrog has both Tam Vareach, has taste and a good fragrance. That refers to the Jew who has both Torah, which is the taste, and Ma'asim Tovim, good deeds, giving a person a good reputation, like the scent of a perfume that wafts and can be smelled, so to a person who does good deeds has a good reputation. Kapost Tamarim, the Lulav, refers to someone who has Tam, but no Reach, the date palm, the dates have taste, but there's no scent. That's a person who has Torah and no Maisim Tovim. Anaf Eitzavos, someone who has Adasim, have good smell, but have no taste. That's someone who has Maasim Tovim, good deeds, but no Torah. And lastly, Arve Nachal, the Arabos, is someone who has, unfortunately, neither. And then, of course, the Medrash is telling us about the ultimate Achtos of the Jewish people. By binding all the Minim together, this symbolizes our Achtos, and Hashem is elevated when we come together, and that is how we praise Hashem. Towards the end of this week's Parsha, we read the tragic story of the Megadef, or the Mekalel, the Jew who cursed or blasphemed with Shem Hashem, using God's name. And the Torah tells us that Moshe is instructed, Take this man outside of the camp. And then surprisingly, we read that all the people who witnessed this, who heard his blasphemy, must put their hands on his head. They do what we might think of as smicha. And then, they would all then stone him. This pasuk, and specifically the reference to smicha, that the people who heard his blasphemy put their hands on his head, raises two related questions. First of all, we know from the world of karbonos, that generally when a person does smicha, they rest their hands on a karbon. That's a form of kapara. In this case, it is peculiar. What are the witnesses looking to get atonement for? They don't need kapara. They're just witnesses. They're not the sinner. They're not the one being punished. Why would they need to do smicha? What is the purpose of this seemingly bizarre ritual of them putting their hands on his head? Secondly, Rashi quotes from the Medrash in the Torah's Kohanim that after they put their hands on his head, the witnesses would then say, Omrimlo, damcha beroshcha, your blood is on your head. Einanun enshim b'misascha, we are not being... Um, responsible, we are not being punished because of your death, which comes at the hands of our testimony. Ata garam talacha. Your behavior is what caused this. You are responsible. You have your own blood on your hands, as we might say. Um, what is peculiar about this statement from the Medrash, quoted by Rashi, is not the merits of the statement. They're clearly true. We would never think of witnesses who come forward and give testimony that is deemed to be true to be the cause of a person's punishment. His or her behavior is the cause of the punishment. We only know about the behavior because of the witnesses, but it's not the witness's fault uh, that the person's getting punished. It's the result of their own behavior. Nevertheless, what is peculiar is why would that be specifically articulated in this actual case of the blasphemer? It's true in every case. Anytime witnesses give testimony about someone doing a very serious avera that requires any kind of punishment, let alone the death penalty, 
you might have said in some perhaps deranged way, it's the witness's fault. And the response would be, no, it's not the witness's fault. The person has to take responsibility for his own actions, as the Medrash so beautifully puts it. But if that's true all the time, how come it's only in this particular case, with this particular episode, this particular story, that Chazal make the point of the witnesses saying it, when really there's nothing unique in that regard about this case? In order to answer these questions, Rav Isaac Sher, who was a student and then the son-in-law of the famed altar of Slobodka, and then in fact became the Rosh Hashiva of Slobodka, both when it was in Lithuania and then eventually when it migrated to Israel, and eventually he was Rosh Hashiva in Bnei Brak, dying in the 1950s. So in his beautiful set of Svarim, Leket Sichos Musr, he explains as follows. He says, you need to take a look at the discussion that we have in the Gemara, in Masechah Sanhedrin, on Daphne and Vav, which discusses the broader uh, halachic principles and guidelines for if, unfortunately, there'd ever be a repeat of this. What would be the way we would uh, adjudicate and investigate a similar case of someone blaspheming in the name of God. So there in Sanhedrin, it tells us that the witnesses come forward, and when they offer their testimony, the Bezdin, the judges ask the witnesses, what did this person say? What did you hear? But the Gemara says, when the witnesses would give their testimony, they would not say the actual name of God that was used in the context of the curse, but instead would use the euphemism of Yofi. The word Yofi, in fact, the numerical equivalent of its letters are equivalent with the same uh, as the word Elohim. It has the same gematria as the word Elohim. So instead of using God's name, uh, Elohim, or the specific name of God that the person used, they would use Yofi as a euphemism. And then they would say whatever the nature of that particular curse was. Um, And, of course, the judges, like in every case, would listen to the testimony, whatever the other witnesses or other evidence that was brought forward, and they would rule on the case. Says the Gemara, if it turns out that the judges ruled that the testimony is considered legitimate and corroborated and therefore going to be acted on, and the person also deserves capital punishment as the story in our Parsha, then what would happen is, right when they're ready to take him out to be executed, the Basin needed to be absolutely sure, 100% that the Pesach is correct, and they would call the witnesses back into the court and they would tell them, you know, based on your testimony, this person is liable to the death penalty. He's Chayv Misa. Now, tell us exactly what he said using his words, using the name of God. And the witnesses at that point would utter the exact words of the curse, of the blasphemy that had brought up now this capital punishment, this onish of Misa. And the Gemara concludes by telling us that this is such a traumatic and scandalous moment where you're recreating the actual crime uh, in the court that the Dayanim, the judges, would actually tear Kriya. It would be in a very emotional moment for everyone, including the witnesses who had to express such terrible words. So in light of all this, says Rav Sher, now we understand that it's not just that the witnesses went through something that was sad or traumatic, but it was worse than that. By hearing something that they should not ever have heard, and then being required to say something that they never should have ordinarily said, this had the potential to have a very negative consequence on them even though they were doing the right thing and they're required by halacha to do so. But just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean there can't, you can't be a casualty, <laughs> and there can't be collateral damage. And that, in fact, could have been. And therefore, he says, that's what the Gemara means, that's what Rashi means in our Parsha, excuse me, when it says that they had to do smicha. Because yes, in fact, if you witness something like that, and if you're required to then ultimately articulate and utter those exact heinous words, you also need a kapara. You didn't do anything really wrong in the way that the 
defendant did. But nevertheless, by being required to repeat those words, that is something that is not only traumatic, but spiritually deleterious. And therefore, you actually needed to do, you needed some kind of kapara, and therefore you did the smicha on the head of the person who did it. Rav Sher derives from this the importance of mishpat, of the judicial system, that we can never uh, you know, execute anyone uh, without exact perfect knowledge. And he goes on about that. But I would say that there's a slightly different muster for the rest of us. We're not in the legal system, which is that we have to realize that um, the impact that our words or anyone's words have not only on themselves, but people who hear them, that can also be very negative and corrosive. One of the fascinating halachic discussions regarding Sfirasa Omer, which is found in our Parsha, is the question of whether women are exempt or obligated in this mitzvah. On the one hand, we know, based on Seches Kiddushin, the Mishnah there, the women are exempt from all positive time-bound mitzvos, mitzvah man grama. Therefore, it makes sense, it seems intuitive, almost obvious, that women should also be exempt from counting Sfiras Omer, from counting the Omer. After all, what seems to be a better example than Sfiras Omer of a mitzvah that is bound by, limited by time? It's just these 49 days that we're counting. And therefore, it's no surprise that a majority of Rishonim, including the Rambam and the Sefer Achinuch, all write explicitly that women are exempt, they're potter from Sfiras Omer. However, fascinatingly, and somewhat confoundingly, the Ramban in his Chedushim to Masechus Kedushin, writes that women are chayiv to count Sfirah Soma. They are obligated. And this raises the question which has preoccupied many, many uh, achronim over the centuries. How can we understand this position of the Ramban? Isn't it obvious that the majority of the Rishonim are correct and that women should be exempt, that it's Zman Grama? What could the Ramban possibly be thinking in obligating women in Sfirah Omer? So I want to share with you very quickly three different approaches to this question. The first is that some Achronim, including apparently Rav Soloveitchik uh, and others, suggested that it's all one big mistake. It was a ta'usofer, it was a printing error over the centuries. A mistake crept into the manuscript of the Ramban, but in fact he never meant it. Even the Ramban would agree that women are exempt. Aside from not being so intellectually uh, satisfying um, and exciting of an answer, um, it's also uh, contradicted by all sorts of circumstantial evidence, which points in the direction that Ramban really, really meant it. But I share it with you just in the spirit of intellectual honesty and full transparency. One approach in Achronim is that there is no there there. In fact, he never said it. He even, Ramban would agree, women are exempt. However, as I mentioned, most other Achronim do take the Ramban as we have it printed in our manuscripts at face value, and they assume that the Ramban thinks that women are obligated, and therefore it begs the question, how could that be? So second answer is suggested, a brilliant answer, by the Avne Nezer. He points out in one of his chuvos that if you look in the Torah, in our Parsha, it is not the 16th of Nisan which triggers, which is the machayev of the mitzvah of counting, but rather, as the Torah famously says, mimacharas hashabbos, from the day after hashabbos, which in this context means the first day of Pesach, which is a convoluted way of saying we start counting on the second day of Pesach. The point, says Avni Nezer, is the fact that the Torah uses that convoluted Lashon and connected Sfiras Omer to counting Mimachras HaShabbos, Davka referring to it as the second day of Pesach, the day after the first day of Pesach, it's a way of the Torah conveying that Sfiras Omer is not an independent mitzvah, but rather it is a derivative, it is a part of Pesach. Just like there are all sorts of other Pesach mitzvos, one of the Pesach mitzvos is to start counting the Omer. The idea that already on Pesach, we're anticipating and counting up towards Shavuos and the holiday of receiving the Torah. But it's really a Pesach mitzvah, not an independent mitzvah. Why is this so important? Because Avni Nezer points out that we know that women are obligated, just as men are, 
in all of the mitzvos that are revolving around the Pesach celebration. Even those mitzvos which would seem to be on their face, clearly time-bound in Zman Grama, women are still obligated. Women have to eat matzah because of its connection to chametz, according to the Gemara. Women have to drink the four cups because of the idea of afhein hayu ba'oso hanes. So the Gemara says these are ex- excep- exceptions. Even though they may be Zman Grama, women can be obligated because of their overriding factors. According to some Rishonim, women are obligated in Sipur Yitziat Matrai and reading the Haggadah, just like men, because of these overriding factors. Therefore, says the Avni Nezer, now that we've reached the conclusion, now that we've proven that, in fact, Sfer Omer is not independent as a mitzvah, because as independently it's clearly Zman Grama, but in fact it's just a one of the many Pesach mitzvos, well, if that's the case, says Avdei Nezer, once we reach that conclusion, then we have to understand that just like women are obligated in all of the other Pesach mitzvos, they're also obligated to count Sviras Omer. In other words, Avdei Nezer accepts the fact that it is Zman Grama, but he says this is an exception to the rule under the greater umbrella of all Pesach mitzvos are exceptions to the rule, and now that I've proven that Sviras Omer is also a Pesach mitzvah, it is also an exception to the rule. A third and final answer is suggested by some achronim, such as Rav Yochum Fischl Perlau, as well as the Divrei Yecheskel. And they part ways with the previous approaches, and they say, no, this is a fundamental disagreement about the nature of defining the category of mitzvah sasei shazman grama. We're making a mistake, they suggest, by assuming that any mitzvah that is limited in time, sometimes you're obligated, sometimes you're not. If we think that that is what zman grama means, we're making a mistake. Rather, they argue, what Zman Grama really means is literally Zman Goreim, Grama. It means that the time period in question is the Machayev. It's a certain time period which is triggering the obligation. We eat matzah on the 15th of Tishrei because that time, that date on the calendar triggers an obligation. We sit in the sukkah on the 15th of Tishrei because that date, that time period, triggers the obligation. It's the Machayev. However, they point out, when it comes to Sferas Omer, that's actually not the case. It's not the time of these 49 days which triggers the obligation, but rather, as the Torah itself says, we count from the Sferas Ha. Omer, it's the Karban HaOmer that is brought in the base of Mikdash on the second day of Pesach. It's the Karban that's the Machayev, the Karban that's the trigger, and then we count for 49 days. So yes, it's limited in time, but it's not triggered, it's by time. The time period is not the Machayev in the way that many other mitzvahs are. It's the Karban that's the Machayev, and therefore in their understanding, fundamentally, Sfiras Omer, despite first appearances, is not Zman Grama, and therefore fundamentally, even on its own merits, it does not qualify for the exemption, and that's why the Ramban rules that women are chayev. How do we paskin? So despite all these interpretations, brilliant as they may be, the Ramban is a minority view. Most Rishonim reject the Ramban, and we paskin that women are exempt from the mitzvah. Interestingly, the Magen Avram has a tremendous chiddush, and he says in his day it's so common for women to count that he thinks that women as a category have accepted the mitzvah upon themselves. Shavya Laichova, to the extent that it seems that he's implying that all women subsequently really must count not because of the original obligation, because we Paskin women are exempt, but because of this custom which has been created by the universal recitation and counting of Sirs Omer by women. Many poskim disagree with this, either on fundamental grounds that such a thing is possible for a category of people to just accept upon themselves, or just on empirical grounds. Says the Mishnah Brewer, I look around, and in my day and time and place, not that women are counting. Moreover, he quotes people who say women shouldn't count because they'll probably mess up because they're not literate. However, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach and many others write, that was true, unfortunately, once upon a time, but nowadays women are literate just as much as men, and therefore they can count, not a problem.